we have at least been forced to come into terms with our own davening. We can no longer mindlessly rush through the words, justifying it as necessary to keep up with the minion, uh, get out in time for work, or whatever else. We now stand before Hashem with nowhere else to go, with no seaboard to regulate our pace, and no one crowding into, us, into the seats next to us, which might disturb our kavana. We're in the literal set presence of the ultimate king, the creator and the controller, with our sitter open and all the time in the world to daven properly and beseech our benevolent and loving father and boss. This is an opportunity and a test which demonstrates whether our davening for real or is it an empty act. Let us make sure it is the former. Next, fidelity to halacha. Although I do not have the time to follow them closely, I'm a member of email and text groups of Rabbanim who are sharing and answering unique shilas that arise under the very trying circumstances of the coronavirus pandemic. pandemic. How to do tahara and kavura for niftarim, kashrus guidelines for people who could not access certain foods for Pesach, how to operate in mikvos and perform brisim under severe limitations. Shilas about Koilim and elderly people who were alone for Yom Tov, etc. For each Shaila, a cogent tshuva was presented by Poskim, who upheld halachic standards and dispensed only with things that are not essential due to the exigencies. This is the derech psak in Shas Hatchak, as in the case now. This is what I alluded to before. Becoming Bale Achrayas. There are many grown people, some of whom are grandparents, or at least old enough to be, yet they have never really prepared for Pesach, leaving it up to their parents or the hotels who host them for the entire Yom Tov. Vedikas Chometz, koshering a kitchen and running a Seder are almost foreign concepts to these people. This year, everything changed as our brethren of all ages prepared their homes for Pesach and conducted their own siddharim. Despite the negative circumstances during which this occurred, it compelled people to take achrayas and lead, and it is something to seriously think about, and the opportunity that they maybe never had in a lifetime. Empathy. We are often asked to daven for choylim. There are frequently people who we do not know and can become mere names with little personal connection or significance. During the coronavirus outbreak, just about every single one of us knew individuals who were in the throes of death or who were nifter. It really hit home. We davened fervently for so many cholim to whom we were close and personally experienced their suffering. Let us move forward and continue to empathize with each person for whom we daven, cry for their suffering, and with Hashem's help, be able to rejoice in their recovery. We must become people of personal empathy and authentic, heartfelt concern for every single member of Achenu Beis Yisrael. We daven to Kaddish Baruch Hu for Rachim and Rafuas, Yeshuas and Besaras Tobas, and that we properly learn the lessons of this very difficult period in our lives. That was Rabbi Gordimer from the uh, OU. Now, I'd like to um, share with you something that I heard just yesterday. It was an. It was uh, one of the. I don't exactly remember where it is, but it was a shear that was for Bacharim who have the free time now, and I caught it, 
I was very, very, very nice, and he was talking about Yashin. So I know Yashin's a few months away. This is the time when you can still enjoy yourself and eat anything you want and, and not have to worry about Yashin because we just passed Pesach. But the, the, the program was very, very good. Uh, if I had to, I could find out where it was. I mean, you could get Rabbi Gersten, and he would tell you where it was. Rabbi Eli Gersten was the BOU. And uh, if, you, if you need to find out, you let me know, and I'll, I'll try to put you in contact, whatever. But anyway, this is about Yashin, and it's very, very interesting. So I'm going to share with you maybe ten points, and I'll tell you the truth, a lot of them were new to me, and I, uh, I'm glad that I, I was able to listen to it. So I think you'll get something very valuable out of it. Number one, reminding everybody that there's two types of wheat. There's winter wheat and spring wheat. The winter wheat is put underground. It's planted in the winter. It stays underground, and it's harvested in the summer. So there's not really a problem because it's coming up. And after Pesach, it becomes mutter because when Pesach, when they bought the Omer, the Akrovis Omer on the second day of Pesach, so that was permitted us to eat the new grain. So the new grain is, is permitted, it is not taken out of the ground, and that's called winter wheat. That's the safe one. Winter wheat of any year is going to be okay, guaranteed. Now, the problem, though, is the spring wheat. So the spring wheat is planted in April or May, which is right now, and then usually pull it out of the ground at the end of August. So that's uh, what people use. Um, you know, and they have to wait until next Pesach for it to become mutter. So you can't use that, for example, to, to make a matzah, etc. So you have to go earlier and pick the winter wheat out of the ground. Now, everybody knows what they grew. This one's growing winter wheat, this one's spring wheat. They're not growing it together. It'll be, uh, it'll, be, it'll be impossible to do anything like that. So obviously, like, this is winter wheat and this is spring wheat. Okay, now, matzah pretzels are always yoshin. No problem. On the other hand, oats is a problem. We'll see in a second. There basically are, we have, you know, the five grains, wheat, barley, rye, oats, and spelt. But out of those, it's only three that are really a problem. Rye and spelt is not going to be it's always yushin. Rye and spelt is always going to be yushin. But the three that are a problem are wheat, oats, and barley. In Canada... Almost 100%, or maybe 100% of the time, all of the oats are chadash. Chadash is the thing we can't eat. We have to wait until next Pesach to eat. So, so that's the problem is the chadash. So the oats from Canada is like that's a, a given that it's no good. And um, another thing he, he talked about, which I thought was very interesting, was about the milling. Now, when you mill, there's two types of mills. There's a mill that only does winter wheat, which means no problem. If it only does winter wheat, you're guaranteed that, it can, that it, everything coming out of there is going to be yoshin. It's going to be okay. Not a problem whatsoever if they have a, a, plant, a mill that only does winter wheat. I don't know how many do that or not. They didn't study that. But, uh, but if you do one of those mills, it's a no-brainer, except they add things. <laughs> everything has something, right? That's why the hashkacha on the product, they owe you hashkacha on, on these different flowers and mills and da da da. It's obviously they're doing some work. So what is it that's wrong with the winter wheat uh, mills? They add, put in additives. Sometimes they put barley malt in, and barley is, the, is one of the big problems, right? And then sometimes they add vitamins. And yeah, everything, a vitamin doesn't go in like a, the vitamin has to have a carrier. 
So, you know, vitamins could be an issue, and the barley malt is an issue. But now, um, this, uh, it could be that it's completely bottled. And this is one of the interesting topics that we're going to be taking up, the din of bittel. Bittel means nullified. So you, if you have something that's trace and it gets mixed in, so we know the rule, 60 to 1 sort of does it for us. Not exact, but let's use that thing, that number to, to work with it. Uh, 60 to 1 is bittel. But what happens when something's less than 60 to 1, which means there's more than 60? There's 100 to 1, 1,000 to 1. So you're safe, no? No. There's a special halacha called Dover Shiesh Lo Matirin. Dover Shiesh Lo Matirin means, this is a rabbinic, this is the mean the rabbonin. Dover Shiesh Lo Matirin means that this is going to become kosher without any bitl. And the halacha is a Dover Shiesh Lo Matirin is never nullified if it's in min bimino. If it's the same min, the same type of thing, it will never be nullified. So even one part per zillion, it won't become nullified. That's Dover Shiesh Lamatirin. So, for example, uh, well, what does it mean? For example, like you say that uh, this is going to become mutter anyway. So after Pesach, all this whole business about Yashin, this Chadish business is all bottle. It's, I'm sorry, it's all kosher after Pesach. So if it's all kosher after Pesach, then if it becomes bottle before Pesach, we don't look at that. We say, wait till after Pesach. That's what the, how, the, how the Chazal dealt with it. So Davashiyesh Lomatirin is the scary part. So this is a perfect Davashiyesh Lomatirin because the whole halacha is going to be, it changes the second day of Pesach. This is the exact time every year. Perfect. So therefore, it's a davashesh lamatirin, and therefore will never be nullified. But we're going to get around it. We're going to see how we deal with this. Otherwise, we would be up the creek. Because even the smallest drop left in the machinery, we'd be finished. And the problem is that in these mills, you can't bring in water to clean it. You can only bring in water in maybe in a bakery. But in a, in a uh, mill, water is like kazer. It's trace. Water kills the whole thing, and therefore you would never bring water in. You'd never clean things with water. And the, all throughout the plant, in the mills, I don't want to tell you because maybe you'll get upset. But it's all caked on uh, flour. You know, Any way you look, there's flour and flour. I don't know if you're ever in the bake of, back of a bakery. Probably not. But if you're in the back of a real bakery, there's caked on flour all over the place. Absolutely. I'm not talking about filthy now. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it is, it is, it's, it's definitely white all over the place. This flower flying here and there. It's not easy to clean, but that's a bakery. At least you can use water and, and you could, you know, spend a lot of time and hire a lot of the people to work at the cleaning, but here you can't clean. So it's a big problem. If it's a Davashesh Lamatirin, then even if you have a hundred to one or a thousand to one, you're in trouble. And we'll see how we get out of that. And another problem that comes up is that in, uh, even though they're using winter wheat, um, right, they're using winter wheat. Now, let, let's not use the winter wheat. Let's use the other uh 
Yeah, the, uh, we'll use the we'll we use the one that's not the winter wheat. We'll, we use the, I'm sorry. We'll, we'll talk about the winter, uh, We'll talk about the spring wheat now. So the spring wheat, they temper it. We temper wheat. Tempering means you put put it in water, and you soak it in water in order to make it easier to mill. So if that happens, then it becomes chametz. So now here's a, one of our hetayim. That means that every spring wheat, technically. Is chametz. I mean, unless you don't have it tempered, but it regularly it's going to be tempered, and that's where it's going to become chametz. And if it becomes chametz, and it's not kosher because it's uh, because it's chadash, so now we have something that we can't eat because it's chadash, but it also is chametz. Now, if it's chametz, then I can't keep it on Pesach. So I'm never going to get to day two of Pesach. So it's never going to become mutter. So since it's never going to become mutter, on Pesach, it's not a davashesh lamatirin, and then it can be bottled. And that's one of the things that they use. Again, that if it, if it, can, if it will be a, uh, if it will be chametz because it was tempered, if the wheat was tempered, then it, and it took water in it, and we're worried about chametz, we're not allowed to keep that for Pesach. So since we can't keep it for Pesach, it's not a davashesh lamatirin because it will never reach that time. We're going to get rid of it. We're going to give it to a goy. We're going to destroy it. We're not going to have it at Pesach. So it's not a davashesh lamatirin, and therefore it can be nullified in 60. You don't need to worry about the fact that it's, that it's a davashesh lamatirin. That's one of the big hatarim they rely upon. All the way, by all these hatarim, that were run through uh, Rabbi Belsky Zatzal went through that, and they also got uh, got uh, support from the Rabbanim in Israel. And they say they they say he spoke to to Rabbi Yashuv and I think the others, and he basically got a scummer for how he how they were dealing with this question for Yashuv. Now, uh, another problem is that they add wheat starch sometimes. Again, we may be a problem of being chadash. But again, we have this heter we're talking about with this other uh, issue. A big problem that comes up with transportation, that they use tanker trucks, and they send them in big tanker trucks, and they may have had used, used uh, spring wheat before. So now we have a situation where they're bringing into a plant, let's say a plant that is, um, you know, that, that is... Uh, does yashan and non-yashan, does spring wheat and winter wheat. Now, if we're able to be careful about our additives, if we'd be able to be careful about everything else, how do we now preserve that there isn't something left from last season, from, some, from before? How am I able to start doing my, my kosher yashan wheat, wheat when actually the machinery had been used for chadash sometime in the past? So I can't use water to clean it, so how am I going to get these places cleaned up if they use both winter and spring wheat? So Rabbi Gersten explained beautifully that what is done is that they have to flush it out. And they flush it. When you put in thousands of pounds for several days, very often, he said, it completely cleans the thing out. Now, is there, am I going to tell you there's not a drop left? So he said, no, we can't say that. 
there's going to be something left, but it's going to be very, very small. But then again, we had a problem for Dabba Shesh Lamatirin. Okay, you told me ten, you, you, we got tempered, but I'm not using tempered or uh, whatever it is. I'm not going to rely on that hector. So what else can I do? I'm flushing this out. So he came. There's an unbelievable thing that they worked out. And that is that there's foreign material. In everything you do, there's always foreign material. Let's say, for example, you're making wheat. So you try to get out of the wheat any pebbles. You try to get out of the wheat any little pieces of stubble, any pieces of this and pieces of that, little, little paper, little dirt. Little, you try to clean it out, you do a cleaning. Now, what happens at the very end? In the best situation, do you get every drop of that out? The answer is no. You get very little, but there's a, a drop of foreign material. It may be very, very tiny. It may be a thousandth of the size of whatever it is. It could be teeny-weeny, but there's some foreign material there. Okay? Now, if you flush the wheat with the using uh, yushin wheat through it, and don't use that yushin wheat as yushin, and just flushing it through, and you'll sell that for non-yushin, and then after a while, you will have cleaned it out, and there'll be remaining inside here a little bit of chadash wheat, plus a certain amount of foreign material. And when he, what they said, he worked it out, it's beautiful, brilliant. They worked out what, based upon what all the experts say, how long does it take to flush out the, uh, the, spring, the spring wheat, the chadash wheat, in, 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 until we have a ratio where the foreign matter in the in the chad, in the in the chad, sorry in the yashin, the foreign matter in the new wheat that I'm putting through here, the yashin, foreign matter is more than sixty times the amount of remaining residue chadash wheat that's stuck that's stuck in the machinery from before. So he said that when we, and he, he claims that within a day, you've definitely, 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 definitely nullified anything that's going to come out of there in 60 from the foreign, the foreign matter against the Chodesh wheat. The, the, uh, the Yashin wheat cannot knock out the, uh, the Chodesh wheat because of Davashesh Lamatirin. And Davashesh Lamatirin is only when it's the same type. But the foreign matter is not the same type. It's called minbeinomino. And therefore, a simple 60 to 1 in the foreign matter versus the chadish flower is going to be take care of the chadish flower. It's a special halacha, the brilliant idea that they have, and this is one of the methodologies that they utilize. I could go on. There's more stuff about deliveries, but I think it's getting late, and I want to go on to some of the other topics. Besides, maybe it's over some of the baseball heads, and I'm interested in this, and then I'm not even in the ocean. I thought it was absolutely fantastic, and, uh, and I, I wish that I had uh, heard all about this years ago. It's very, very, very interesting. Let me take you someplace else, just to, for a change of pace. Let me take you to We Are In This Together. I just got this. I do not know really who is behind it. I mean, they gave me a name, but it doesn't matter. And you don't necessarily have to... <laughs> Join 
but I thought this was interesting. We are in this together. We're, we're living life differently these days. No work or less work. Kids all home or no one around, some very busy and some not busy at all. Would you like to meet someone with similar interests or just plain interesting? Someone from your generation or decades older or younger? Let's join together by phone or video, those who use it, and by mail. Let's encourage each other. Let's share and let's care. Let's show our Abbas Yisrael. Very important. People should do this. You don't even need this organization. You can do it yourself. To look in your, your roller decks if you still have one or your, your telephone book or if you, if you have it online or you have it on your phone. Look through the names. See who somebody's older, somebody who you think is alone or somebody could use a word to p- pick up. Maybe they were sick. Maybe you could just make a call or two. It's a beautiful thing. So basically this organization, just some lady put it together, and she, she wants just people to spend 10 minutes twice a week on the phone or video chat or a letter or a card once a week, and somebody of your own gender to uplift, to strengthen, and just to show that you care. So if you're interested in this, it's very, very simple. You're just going to have to send email. If you don't do email, then forget about the whole deal. But if you do email... All you have to remember is we are in this together at AOL.com. You just drop them a note, tell them your name, address, phone number, email address, your age, and your gender. If you do that, you'll be in. Again, we are in this together at AOL.com. We are in this together at AOL.com. Give me your name, address, telephone number, email address, age, and gender. You want to join something great, something else, you can go partners in Torah. Ura has a, has a Torah mate. You can join that, and you can help a lot of people who need it. Uh, if, you can do, if you want to do that, I think it would be wonderful. In any event, this is a, a simple suggestion that somebody sent past me. And I, I happen to see this article. I'm going to share it with you. It's very short. It's about, I mean, it's, uh, it's a Lubavitcher who is talking about how successful he was with this particular young man. But I think it was interesting. A Jew in his 30s who lives in the exclusive waterfront neighborhood of Puerto Madero neighborhood in Buenos Aires, in Argentina, he poured out $4,000 worth of alcohol in his kitchen sink on Cholomoy Pesach. It seems that uh, the director of Chabad over there in Puerto Madero told the story about an incident that happened. This young man, this is, this is a young man who in the past withdrew a bit from participating in davening and shurim in the Chabad house, the rabbi said. Uh, at first, I didn't understand why, but later, people in the community told me that he was dating a non-Jewish girl. But I still kept up my kasha with him, and before Pesach, I gave him matzah shmura like every year. And Cholamoyi called me and told me that Baruch Hashem he left his non-Jewish girlfriend, and he went home. And in, in my heart, I was sure that the eating of the matzah, the machola, the danusa, the food of Amuna, gave him the Amuna and the koyach to take that step. He told me the reason he's calling me is because when he returned home, he realized his liquor cart was full of alcoholic drinks, which are chametz, and he wanted to know what he had to do. The alcohol was worth a considerable amount of money. They claim it was worth $4,000, the hummus that he spilled out. So that's a 
little story from right now. I was intrigued by the following. I, I don't know if everybody who is listening to me is going to be as excited as I am, but um, well, no, this, well, this is actually a different thing. This is talking about similar to what we said before about helping out. This is a, uh, a story about COVID-19 around the world and different uh, organizations, what they do in their places. And uh, it seems that there are a lot of people who volunteer to help out, and uh, that was a, it was a wonderful uh, thing that, that went on. Um, I'm just not going to go through all of it, but uh, they... They distribute, you know, they distribute food, etc., etc. That this Baruch Hashem, this is a time when when people are utilizing their kaychas to help other Jews. It's a wonderful. It's a. It's. I always say it's a scary time, but it's a wonderful time. It's the worst of worst of times, and it's the best of times. And it's what you make out of it. Now I'm going to share with you something that I came across. I'll tell you how I came across it. I think you know what's going on in New York, especially uh, where there's a certain amount of antagonism towards the from people, the Jewish people. And it happened from this incident with the Levaya, where things went went a little bit haywire, and uh, the uh, the mayor stepped in and he made a whole to do, and then they were uh, they went uh, and gave out tickets all over the place to to the, the from Jews and in the Borough Park and in Williamsburg, and, they, you know, they made a, a riot out of it. They, they, they clamped down and made a whole scene, and the, there was writings and the emails back and forth, and all kinds of negative things were happening. So one fellow wrote a, a letter to the, an email probably, to the, uh, to the mayor of New York, Mr. de Blasio, and he said to him basically, you know, that, was over the, he went over the bounds here, he said it in a nice way, and he quoted something, and I had never heard it, so I wanted to check it up, and I got myself into something I thought was very interesting. I'm going to share you a few words with you from it. It seems that uh, this is a, a, very, uh, a very famous quote. Let me see if I can find the quote now. <laughs> yeah. This is the quote that I saw, and then I went back to the source, so I'm going to tell you how to get to the source. But the quote is great. It's Mark Twain in 1898 in Harper's Magazine, 1898. Mark Twain, that's Samuel Clemens, the famous writer. He, he was not anti-Jewish, by the way. He wrote the following. The Jews saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces passed, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? And then he has this whole article about the Jews, and I'm going to read to you a few lines from it, and you can get the whole thing it's, if you do online, you can get it there, uh, it's tremendous, uh, it's called Concerning the Jews, that's all it is, Concerning, if you just type that in, 
you'll get, you'll get the whole thing come up. Concerning the Jews, Harper's Magazine, March 1898. It seems that he wrote something. He was living at that time in Vienna, and, and, and he wrote something, and, and some Jew wrote a letter to him, and that's what he's responding to. And in the letter that that fellow wrote, uh, he said, I read Stirring Times in Austria, which is what Mr. Clemens wrote. The show of military force in the Austrian parliament, which precipitated the riots, was not introduced by any Jew. No Jew was a member of that body. And he's going on and talking about what uh, Mr. Clemens, what uh, Mark Twain wrote about, and he says, but no Jew was involved. Why did everybody turn against the Jew? Yet in your, your article, you say, in the rioting which followed, all classes of people were unanimous only on one thing, in being against the Jews. Now, will you kindly tell me why, in your judgment, the Jews have thus ever been, and are even now in these days of supposed intelligence, the butt of baseless, vicious animosities. And he goes on. And he says, can American Jews do anything to correct, correct it, either in America or abroad? Will it ever come to an end? Will the Jew be permitted to live honestly, decently, and peacefully like the rest of mankind? What has become of the golden rule? That's something that the Goyim claimed that they had, the golden rule. You know, okay. A few years ago, a Jew observed to me that there was no uncourteous reference to his people in my books and asked me how it happened. This is what uh, he's, I think, what he's saying. It happened because the disposition was lacking. I am quite sure that, bar one, I have no race prejudices, and I think I have no color prejudices, nor caste prejudices, nor creed prejudices. Indeed, I know it. That's what Samuel Clemens said. I don't hate people. He said, except what, I don't know what that is. He didn't tell us over here. In any event, he's going to now tell us, which is worth listening to for the next few minutes, what is all about being a Jew. This is a goy telling us, and it is remarkable how much truth in what the man said. All religions issue Bibles against him, against us, and say the most injurious things about him, him meaning the Jew. But we never heard his side. We have none but the evidence for the prosecution, and yet we've rendered the verdict. To my mind, this is irregular. It is un-English. It is un-American. It is French. <laughs> Without this precedent, Dreyfus could not have been condemned. Right. Right. And he hit the nail on the head. So there are six points that he addresses and from the letter that this gentleman wrote him. Number one, the Jew is a well-behaved citizen. Number two, can ignorance and fanaticism alone account for his unjust treatment? Three, can Jews do anything to improve the situation? Four, the Jews have no party. They are not part participants. I'm not going to go into that aspect of it. it was not, I don't think it's too much to us to listen to that. Number five, will the persecution ever come to an end? And number six, what has become of the golden rule? You know, treat others on the way you want to be treated. Point number one. We must grant proposition number one for several reasons. And the Jew is a well-behaved citizen. Why? 
the Jew, is not a disturber of the peace in, of my country. Even his enemies will concede that. He's not a loafer. He's not a sot. He's not a noisy. He's not a brawler nor a rioter. He's not quarrelsome. In the statistics of crime, his presence is conspicuously rare. In all countries, with murder and other crimes of violence, he has but little to do. He is a stranger to the hangman. In the police court's daily long roll of assaults and drunk and disorderlies, his name seldom appears. That the Jewish home is a home in the truest sense is a fact that no one will dispute. The family is knitted together by the strongest affections. Its members show each other every due respect, and reverence for the elders is an inviolate law of the house. The Jew is not a burden on the charities of the state nor the city. These could cease from their functions without affecting him. When he is well enough, he works. When he is incapacitated, this is beautiful what he's going to say now, his own people take care of him, and not in a poor and stingy way, but with a fine and large benevolence. His race is entitled to be called the most benevolent of all the races of men. A Jewish beggar is not impossible, perhaps. Such a thing may exist, but there are few men that can say they have seen that spectacle. The Jew has been staged in many uncomplimentary forms, but so far as I know, no dramatist has done him the injustice to stage him as a beggar. Whenever a Jew has real need to beg, his people save him from the necessity of doing it. The charitable institutions of the Jews are supported by Jewish money, and amply. The, Jew makes no, uh, the Jews make no noise about it, and it is done quietly. They do not nag and pester and harass for their contributions. They give us peace and set us an example, an example which we have not found ourselves able to follow. For by nature, we're not free givers and have to be patiently and persistently hunted down in the interest of the unfortunate. So he saw the benevolence of the Jewish people and said that, Yes, there may be some Jews who have a need. Those people come to our door and knock on the door. They know you're collecting for the for Israel and for, and for their personal needs. And, and yet, in the shul, for example, an unbelievable number of people buy. But we take care of them. The Jewish people take care of them. They're not becoming wards of the state. These facts are all on the credit side of the proposition that the Jew is a good and orderly citizen. Summed up, they certify that he is quiet, peaceable, industrious, and addicted to high crimes and brutal decisions, that his family is commendable, that he's not a burden on the public charities, that he's not a beggar, that in benevolence he is above the reach of competition. These are the very quintessentials of good citizenship. If you can add that, he is honest as the average person, the average of his neighbors. But I think that question is affirmatively answered by the fact that he's a successful businessman. So I'm not, and they, he tells the story, I'm not going to go into it now, but George III, the Hessian Duke, went to fight George Washington, and, um, and by and by, he was, uh, the French Revolution came and uh, made his throne too warm for him. He got, had to run out of the country. 
So here he is in a hurry, and he had to leave his uh, earnings behind. Nine million dollars a few years ago, right? Two hundred and fifty years ago, two hundred seventy years ago, whatever it is. And uh, he, uh, he he had to, he had to run away and leave nine million dollars. He had to risk the money with someone without security. He did not select a Christian, but a Jew, a Jew of only modest means, but of high character. A character so high that it left him lonesome. Rothschild of Frankfurt. The, the Hessian Duke gave him $9 million to watch for him. Thirty years later, when Europe had become quiet and safe again, the Duke came back from overseas, and the Jew returned the loan with interest added. Amazing story. Uh, I'm going to have to move a little faster here because the time is running out. So here we go. Basically, um, what he said, he talks about how the Jew had to get kicked out of all the trades, and he ended up being money lender and, you know, and buying. And so he had, he had to do in the business area. It's the only thing he could do. And he goes through that. But he, he explains how the Jew made it up to the top, and I'm not going to go through all of it, but this is where he was he was at, and what happened is he became hated for it. With most people of a necessity, bread and meat take first rank, religion second. I'm convinced that the persecution of the Jew is not due in any large degree to his religious prejudice. No, the Jew is a money-getter. And in getting his money, he is a very serious obstruction to less capable neighbors who are on the same quest. I think that is the trouble. He thinks that the success of the Jew was just too much for the Goyim. And I've seen this again and again and again. I mean, he hit the nail on the head. But I mean, we believe that the sinner came to because of the religion, because they hate us, because of the Torah. But it's true. That's also true. But one of the most public things is the success. And if you talk about those neighborhoods where the Jew owns the property, he owns the houses, he owns this, he owns that, and here are the lower uh, echelon of society living there, using the stores, etc., and seeing this fellow in and get into his car and, and, and see how he conducts himself, and they say, why does he have all the money? Well, that seems to be uh, a major theme in the uh, anti-Semitism that's going on. In estimating worldly values, the Jew is not shallow, but deep. With precocious wisdom, he found out in the morning of time, beginning of time, that some men worship rank, some worship heroes, some worship power, some worship God. And that over these ideals, they dispute and cannot unite, but that they all worship money. So he made it the end and aim of his life to get it, which is terrible. He's saying that Jews are always running after money. But whether it's true or it's not true, that was really the only way they could uh, make, uh, they could survive because they weren't allowed in many of the professions. Now, he goes through and he shows how in Mitzrayim, Yosef was on the top and there was a certain sinner towards him. And he goes through 
with all the people that were hated because they because they made it in society. Now he asks the question: Can Jews do anything to improve the situation? I think so. If I make a suggestion without seeming to be trying to teach my grandmother how to suck eggs, I'll offer it. In our days, we've learned the value of combination. We apply it to everywhere, in railway systems, in trusts, in trade unions, in salvation armies, etc., etc., etc. Whatever our strength may be, big or little, we organize it. We have found that the found out that the that is the only way to get the most out of of that is uh, uh, of it that is in it. We know the weaknesses of individual sticks and the strength of a concentric faggot. In other words, if you hold the Sticks together, they can't be broken. One stick can be broken. And he claims that the Jewish people are not united. Yes, you want to say, you want to get rid of everything? You want people? Yes, the Jewish people have to be united. That was a major theme in this. I don't have time to finish the whole thing. We're going to go a little bit here. Then he goes on to to discuss Dr. Herzl. I'm not gonna. I'm not a uh, a fan of the. You know, I'm not gonna get lost in the in the Zionist discussions here. But these two paragraphs are, are worth listening to. Speaking of concentration, Dr. Herzl has a clear insight into the value of that. Have you heard of his plan? He wishes to gather the Jews of the world together in Palestine, with a government of their own, under the sovereignty of the Sultan, I suppose. At the convention of Bern last year, there were delegates from everywhere, and the proposal was received with decided favor. <laughs> I'm not the sultan, he said, and I'm not objecting. But if that concentration of the cunningest brains in the world were going to be made in a free country, I, I think it would be politic to stop it. It will not be well to let the race find its own strength. In other words, once the Jews see who they are, and the question we have together, nothing could stop us. And that is, and this is from a goy, and this is what he saw, that if the Jews would be united, yes, we would have less problems. Instead, we didn't listen to him. And everybody is in doing their own thing. And he ends off here to conclude, if the statistics are right, the Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. I think it's a lot less than that. It suggests a nebulous dim puff of stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of, has always been heard of. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people, and his commercial importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contributions to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and obtuse learning are also a way out of the proportion to the weakness of his numbers. He has made a marvelous fight in this world, in all the ages, and has done it with his hands tied behind him. He could be vain of himself and be excused for it, the Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream puff stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they 
are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight now, or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmary, infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? So it seems that what happened is, when he finished this article, so he had said something in there, that gave the idea that the Jews were not soldiers. I don't know what he had said exactly. I mean, I'm going to look for it. But afterwards, he did a postscript. He told about Jews who were soldiers. And even though that's not something that's so exciting to us, it is interesting how he were looked upon. When I, when I published the above article in Harper's Monthly, I was ignorant, like the rest of the Christian world, of the fact that the Jew had a record as a soldier. I have seen the official statistics, and I find that he furnished soldiers and high officers to the Revolution, the War of 1812, and the Mexican War. In the Civil War, he was represented in the armies and navies of both the North and the South by 10% of his numerical strength, the same percentage that was furnished by the Christian populations of the two sections, I mean the North and the South. And he goes on to talk about the patriotism, etc., but he says an interesting thing. This large fa fact that, they, that the Jews uh, you know, joined the army, the large fact means, that more, means, means more than it seems to mean, for it means that the Jews' patriotism was not merely level with the Christians, but overpassed it. When the Christian volunteer arrived in camp, he got a welcome and an applause. But as a rule, the Jew got a snub. His company was not desired. And he was made to feel it. Forget about the Kashrus issue, right? Then that he nevertheless conquered his wounded pride and sacrificed both that and his blood for his flag raises the average and quality of his patriotism above the Christians. His record for capacity, for fidelity, and for gallant soldiership in the field is as good as anyone. And he quotes Major General O.O. Howard. And this is what the Major said that one of his Jewish staff officers was of the bravest and best. And, and he said, another one, a true friend and a brave officer. He highly praises two of his Jewish brigadier generals. Finally, he uses these strong words. This is a quote from General, Major General O.O. Howard. Intrinsically, there are no more patriotic men to be found in the country than those who claim to be of Hebrew descent and who served with me in parallel commands or more directly under my instruction. In other words, good soldier. All right, that's not for me a big deal, and for you not a big deal, but this is, believe it or not, I was reading from Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, who wrote all those stories, who had the sense of humor, you know, who certainly wasn't, uh, he wasn't Jewish, and yet, you know, he looked at it, and he said he saw what they were doing to the Jews all over the world. 
he saw he saw how we would be mistreated, and he said that it's not our fault. And the only problem that he could find was that we're not united. This is what the goy, with that big brain, who analyzed this thing and took it apart and gave it over to the rest of the world. What did he see? We lack achdus. And that's what the Jewish people need the most. And the, if the Goy is telling us, we should have known it ourselves, but the Goy is telling us, then obviously it's very, very, very true, and we should be taking advantage of it. See, I didn't finish everything I wanted to do. It always is that way. But I think we went through some important things, and uh, I want everyone to make sure that they're taking care of themselves. This is a special time where we can become very great, and if we're not smart, we could become not so well. So everybody has to do the utmost to preserve their health, but at the same time to be concerned about helping other people. And then we mentioned opportunities that you have in that area, whether you join Partners in Torah or Ura with the Torah Mates or that organization, which is called We Are In This Together at AOL.com. Whatever you decide to do, Help somebody else. Use the time well. Take care of yourself. And until next week, this is your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine, for Kashrus on the Air. Anywhere, anytime, for everyone. This is jrootradio.com.